We're in our series called Words from the Mountain, um, and you guys are going to have to uh, laugh a little bit at my bad jokes, so go ahead and laugh at a joke, a bad joke, or whatever joke I come up with. But Okay, so we're in our series called Words from the Mountain, and for the past eight weeks, we have been looking at what are called the Beatitudes. Now, now come on, here's what the Beatitudes are. They are short one-liners that have been called by Christian scholars to be the most profound words that have absolutely ever been spoken. The most profound words that have ever been spoken. And what, what these Beatitudes are is they're serving as an introduction to the rest of what Jesus says in this grand sermon, but they're more than an introduction. It's like the starting point. And, and you can't move on until you understand what is being said in these Beatitudes. So, what we saw last, for the last few weeks is that there is a shift right in the middle of these Beatitudes where we go from needing something from God, like we're desperate for him. We're in great need and we go to God and we, we are filled. But then here's the shift that happens. You go from being in need from God to now helping others around you. So there's a, there's a trend that I see that happens, especially among probably Americans, and in, in potentially in the area that we live in, it's this. We'll be missing something in our life, and we say, okay, I'm going to try this God thing out. So we try out the church, things are going well, and we actually meet God, and it's a wonderful thing. And then we say, now that we've met God, okay, I got what I needed, and I'm out. Gone. And here's the shift that has to happen. And then, and then so you're gone, and then every once in a while you're like, okay, I need something again. Let me come back to the church and come back and find God. Now here's the shift that Jesus talks about us having. Going from being in need from God and receiving, and then helping others. That's the shift that has to happen, and it looks like this. It's as if you have been raised up to the heavens and you've discovered the mercy of God, you've discovered the grace of God, and it has moved you, you've discovered a love of God that is rescuing you, and you've had these desires that have gone unmet in this world, and finally, you're realizing that your heart is made for God, the reason you have longings that nothing in this world can satisfy is because you're made for God, and you realize this, and it's like, oh my gosh, I've been missing this the whole time, and as soon as you discover that, here's what God does. He throws you back down upon the earth, and he says, I've got a mission for you now. It's not time for you yet. And so we keep going back up to God in need, but at the same time, he's throwing us back down to the earth, and he's saying, I have some work for you to do. So every Christian, and it's a purpose, and every Christian is on a mission from God. And that mission is to be peacemakers. So we're at our verse today, Matthew 5, Verses 9 through 12 said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, so here's what I want to do. I want to take you on a little bit of a journey or a path that every Christian must take. It's this journey to discovering the mission that God has had for you. Now, even if you're not a Christian, 
Even if you're here just investigating, there's somewhere on this path that you're going to be as I take you through this journey that, that everybody goes on. So here's a typical journey um, of somebody. We're going to call him Pete because Pete's a good name. Uh, comes from the name Peter in the Bible, and his, his parents gave Pete this name um, because they were Christians. Well, they were kind of Christians. Uh, they were what you might call nominal Christians. They went to church just enough so they could feel like they were Christians. And for them, the idea was they had to just be good enough to earn God's love and acceptance. In, in other words, they were missing what Christianity is about. It's not about earning God's love and acceptance. It's about receiving it as a gift. So they were missing it. But they said, you know what? I'll go to church uh, every once in a while just the right amount so that it feels like I'm a Christian. And so they missed what Christianity was about. And therefore, Pete missed what Christianity was about. But, but Pete was in the youth group. But Pete was in the youth group because there were some girls there that he might be interested in. So, and it was a little bit fun. And so Pete went to the youth group. And then Pete got into college. And as... And, and Pete got to college, Joe, and when Pete got to college, in college you have to be pretty open-minded because you have all this information coming at you, and not just academically, but also socially. So you have to just be super open-minded in college, just taking all this information in. And so Pete goes open-minded, and he starts hearing stuff about God, um, that God's really just for weak people um, who aren't really, I mean, who can't get through it. I mean, they're scared of death. So they want to feel like there's something beyond it. So God just kind of like, we've made him up and he's just there for weak people. But we need to be strong, Pete. I mean, we need to be people who don't need God because God is not a thing. So let's be strong. And so by the end of Pete's college, he, he becomes an atheist or at least an agnostic saying, yeah, maybe, maybe there's a God. I don't know. But if there is, we don't know for sure. So that's where Pete's at. And, and then Pete graduates he uh, meets a girl, they get married, and then they have kids. And then Pete's wife's like, hey, Pete, we probably need to go to church. And Pete hadn't really thought much about going to church or much about God, but now it's time. And so they go to church. And he's kind of like skeptical of it all. Um, but over time, he starts hearing things about Christianity, and, and it begins to rock his thinking about there not being a God. And eventually, over time, maybe two years, he becomes a Christian. And uh, then there's, a, there's something that happens when he becomes a Christian. He starts essentially hiding himself. Um, all of his friends that he had before, he's like running from them because he's like, oh man, they were a bad influence on me. The way they talked, the way they acted, I got to protect myself from these people. And so Pete starts protecting himself. He protects his kids. He only wants his kids hanging out with people that are part of the church. And even some of the kids from the church, he's not so happy about his kids hanging out with them. And, and Pete kind of just says, you know, his pastor talks about being a peacemaker, but he kind of sees this as Maybe something that Jesus is supposed to do. And then something happens. He comes to the realization that if he's really following Jesus, that it's not just about Jesus hanging out with the outsiders and the faithless, but actually, if Pete's going to really follow Jesus, then that means he has to really love people who are different than what he believes now. In fact, that's one of the main things that Jesus does. And so he says, okay, I'm going to start doing this. But then, then he gets a little bit crazy. 
And he's like, man, I got to invite everybody to church. And he's just trying to tell everybody about Christianity. And then people are like, what happened to this guy? He's crazy now. And then over time, he realizes, okay, maybe I've been going about this wrong. And then so finally he becomes a peacemaker. And here's what happens. He sees the people around him that, are not, that don't believe what he believes, and he has a true love for them. Like he really cares for them. And he wants them to know what he knows. And so he just starts loving them. And if they give him an opportunity to talk about God, he'll take it. But, you know, he just really wants to love them well. And then eventually he has a friend, an old friend, who starts going through some difficult times. And then he gets to talk with him. And they have some long conversations. And he even gets to pray with him. And over time, this friend of his becomes a Christian. And now, Pete has finally become a peacemaker. This is something that we talk about at our church, that like our mission is to make disciples who make disciples. A disciple is someone who's following Jesus. And so that means you're following Jesus, but you're helping other people discover Jesus. So Pete finally became that. He, he became a Christian, and then he helped someone else become a Christian, essentially. Now, our verse here, the word peacemaker, this is only used one time in the entire Bible, and it's right here. And the word peace in Hebrew is shalom, and it means spiritual flourishing, but it also means emotional flourishing, social flourishing, and even cultural flourishing. So here's what happens when you ha have peace. You have this sense where you're, you have this inner health with God, this inner peace with God. Like you're good. You and God are good. And when that happens, because you see all that he's done for you, you say, okay, we're good. And then here's what happens. It starts to change you on the inside, so you become more emotionally healthy. And then as you become more emotionally healthy, you become socially healthy because now there's peace between you and others. Because your emotional problems were kind of causing some division among people around you, and now there's healing there, and so now you're having actually social health. And then if enough people have discovered God, Christ, in a certain area, like a neighborhood— or a whole city, if God does some amazing things, then it brings about cultural flourishing. Now, this, this word peacemaker, it's emphasizing especially the relational peace between you and God and you and others. And we know that because it says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. It's relational. It's like you become God, God becomes your father, and then all those who have called God their father are now your family. So there's relational peace among people. This is why the church is always called the family, because it's supposed to be. That's what it's supposed to feel like. So this means that the peacemaker, if you're going to be a peacemaker, it means you're reconciling others to God and others to each other, causing peace to come. Now, how's this done? I mean, if you're going to, I mean, this is essentially talking about what, this is the last beatitude, and he's saying, go on to maturity. So what does it look like for you to go on to maturity? It's to seek the peace between others and God and them and others, between God and man. So how's it done? If you want to do this, by words. Specifically, words about Christ's relentless pursuit of making peace between you and God, and you and others. But it's all by words. Now, in the Wild West, 
they had something called a peacemaker. It was a, it was a cult peacemaker. It was a gun. Billy the Kid had, had one. Uh, Wyatt Earp had one. If you were cool, you had a peacemaker, I guess. So here's what this was. Making peace by the threat of war. And this is not at all what Jesus is talking about. Now look, this is not a political statement about guns. Okay, don't hear that. What I'm talking about is I'm talking about Jesus giving you peace and then how that peace enters into the world. So, it's about news that God has come into the world to reconcile himself to us and us with each other. News that God has somehow done it. We were alienated from him. I mean, we grabbed our own cult peacemakers and we tried to run God out of this world. We ran him out and he's coming back in. This is the story of Christianity, that he's written himself back into the story. He's written himself into his own creation and he's done this to come for us, to reconcile us back to the Father. His love drove him in. Now, this is what is called the gospel. This is the good news. Now we're sons and daughters of God. And look, it was while we were enemies that God did this. Not while we were like, eh, God, he's okay. We were enemies. I mean, this is a bold statement that the Bible makes, but the Bible calls us enemies with God, and God came and pursued his enemies to make them not just okay with him, but to make him into his sons and daughters. This is, this is everything. So, for peace. Now, each and every one of you, me, all of us, we pursue a false peace in a lot of ways. Let me give you an example. Gossip. You know what gossip is? It's a way to bring others down. But why are you bringing them down? Because you need some peace in your life. And you feel like if you could bring them down, then in a sense what's happened is you've brought them down and you're here. Now look, you're the best. That brings you some peace. Right? You're feeling pretty good about yourself. Okay, I feel good. You know this feeling that when you find someone who's maybe gone above you, you feel, oh man, I feel crappy about myself. I feel horrible. You know what I'm talking about. So you want to bring them down and it gives you a false sense of peace. We're desperate for peace, and we're looking for it in all the wrong ways. And as we look for it, without finding it from God, we end up destroying people around us. So gossip, essentially what is this? You're taking your, your cult peacemaker, and you're shooting words at people to bring them down so you could feel a bit better about yourself so you can have some peace. But that's not actually bringing peace, it's bringing war. So Here's the question. You find yourself at a party and you're talking to someone and they're just annoying you and you just can't wait to get in the car and tell whoever you're with how annoying they are. And man, it's going to make you feel so good. You're just waiting like, oh man, I wish we could just leave so I could talk about this person. See, look, here's, here's what, here's what the, the Christian realizes. They would be in deep trouble if the Spirit of God inside of them that knows all of your thoughts, that knows all of the things that are on your mind and in your heart, all the things that you think about other people, all the things that you're thinking about doing that you know would be horrible. If the Spirit of God was like, hey, hey, God, Father in heaven, 
you're not going to believe what they're thinking in here. I mean, it is weird. It's some nasty stuff. Imagine if that was the case. But no, here's what the Christian has found. The Spirit of God is in us, and the Spirit of God is telling you something. The Spirit of God is telling you that the Son of God is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's acting as an advocate. He's interceding for you, meaning this. He's bragging to the Father about you, specifically about all the good that Christ has done on your behalf. So Christ comes and lives his perfect life, and he credits all of it to you. Like, that's the thing. That's Christianity. You are seen as being as perfect as the Son of God who lived a perfect life. It's credited to you. And then Jesus in heaven is bragging to the Father, he, she is ours. I've died for them, I've rose for them, and I've lived for them. They are good. They are set. That is what's being said in heaven about you. So why in the world are we wanting to destroy people with our words if that is true of us? Because we don't deserve that, but we get it. It's because we're going to the wrong place for peace. We're trying to find peace in ourselves, but it's found in him. To find grace and mercy and forgiveness from God, that gives you power to just take it easy on people. And the true peacemaker is for others, loves others with all their might. And they do it well because eventually they want to have earned the right and the privilege of hopefully something happening where they can actually tell somebody what has been done for them and how God has offered them peace. They want to tell them that the Father in heaven is not counting the record that I've done against him as my wrong, but what Christ has done, he's counting that to me. So it says, oh man, what a privilege it would be. And you say, well, why, why do I have to earn the right for that? I mean, I have freedom of speech. I could just tell them whatever I want to tell them. Yeah, but here's why you don't. Here's why you earn the right first. Because God sacrificed everything to win you back to him. So you're willing to make sacrifices. You're willing to keep your mouth shut when it's time and earn the right. And here's how you do it, by loving them. By loving them, loving them, loving them, loving them. And then, maybe then, if you get the privilege, you get to share with them. You start saying, I'll do whatever it takes. Tell me what sacrifices I need to make for you. And eventually you do that so that they might actually see you as a friend that they trust, and then now you can share something. And they're going to hear it and receive it well because they know that you are for them. And that's the thing. You've got to prove to people that you are for them because nobody, people don't trust people. I mean, if we, we don't even trust God, so how are we going to trust people? So show them that you're for them. And then here you get to see this. If God answers your prayers that you are having for people to come to know the peace that he's offering, you get to see someone come to faith and you get to walk beside them as they come to faith. And then when they start going through difficult times after they've come to faith, because we all do, when that happens, when they start doubting, you get to be there for them. And that's a privilege. But here's the other thing. As you're doing this, there are going to be some stories where people come to faith and it's a beautiful thing. And there's going to be stories of people going to war against you. 
Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, sometimes you're going to offer peace and they're going to pull out their cult peacemaker against you. Or, if there's someone that's really close to you, they don't pull out a gun because the gun's for far away. They pull out a knife because you're close. And it will feel like they are biting the hand that is trying to feed them. Jesus says this in in John 15. They persecuted me, and so because they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Now, if this is happening to you, if you're being persecuted, you have to realize you have to be persecuted for the right reasons, not because you're being a fool. Sometimes people, I mean, it says persecuted for righteousness sake. Sometimes people are like, oh man, uh, you know, I just went up to this person, I started telling them all about Jesus, and you know, they do it in such like a prideful and arrogant way, like they've got some news that nobody else has, and then people start making fun of them, and they're saying, oh man, look, I'm being persecuted. Like, you're being persecuted because you're a fool, not for righteousness sake. It's really true. The love that we have for people will drive us towards them, And it will teach us how and when they need to hear this truth. For righteousness sake. And what does this mean, righteousness sake? Well, it means, so righteousness, I mean, this is a huge word, but let's just think of it as this right now. It means that righteousness sake means they're reconciled to God. And God's kingdom is coming around them and in them and through them. And so bottom line, here's what I'm saying. When you love someone, you think very hard about how they need to hear truth and how that truth will become beautiful to them. Not just making it true, but also showing them the beauty of it. Some of you are saying right now, is like, oh, well, I don't even know how to tell them this. Well, become a peacemaker. Learn the words of this good news of what God has done for, it, for us. Become a peacemaker. Go on to maturity. Okay, so here's how you should approach the mission that God has you on. You get into the lives of people the same way that God has come and gotten into our world. I mean, you think about Jesus. He came into a specific culture, eating and drinking a very specific food and culture with these people. So you get into the world of people around you. You get into like what they like. You, you like what they like. And you love them. And you live in such a way that's of the kingdom of God. And let me tell you this. If you're living in such a way that's of the kingdom of God, there's a love inside of you that's very strong. It's a love so strong that it causes you to even love your enemies. So this is the ethic of Christianity. Christian ethic is to love your enemies. And, and here's, here's what it is. I mean, you're, you're humble to the core because you know you look at your enemies and the way they're treating you or the way they're treating other people and you can love them still because you know that the only reason that you are living the way that you are living is because you've been rescued by God and that was not your doing, that was his doing and it was the doing of someone who told you about this good news of Christianity and it's changed you to the core and you say, man, what, what reason do I have to be proud? Nothing. And so here's what happens. You seek their good even when they seek your harm. You love them through it 
That's the Christian ethic. I heard a story recently of a guy who vandalized a church, caused over $100,000 in damages. And the church actually pursued him, not to bring justice down, but to forgive him. And eventually, this man came to faith in this church after he had vandalized the church. See, here's what's going on. Because we're thinking about people close to us. They pull a knife on you as you are seeking the peace between them and God, and they pull a knife on you. And here's the picture. As they pull a knife, you give them a hug. And you're hugging them because you know that the only thing that's going to cause them to drop that knife is for them to, to, to experience love. So you hug them, but you hug them knowing that you're going to be wounded by it because they have the knife sitting there. This is what it means. You say, that sounds crazy. I know. This is Christ calling us to go on to maturity, to have that kind of love. Now, I'm not saying we don't pursue justice. I'm saying it's, it's in the midst of pursuing for righteousness sake, for justice to come, for this person to actually understand the love of God, it's going to require some sacrifices on your part. That's what it means. This is going on in maturity. Now, and I know, like, us being persecuted, like, we hear that, and, you know, you look at statistics around the world. Did you know that today more people are killed for having a Christian faith than ever before in the history of the world combined together? It's just not happening here. Persecution here looks a bit different. So anyways, along with this persecution, here's what else it's saying. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Now, if you remember going back, whenever we see this word blessed in the Beatitudes, here's what it's meaning. It, it means you have already been blessed by God, meaning, meaning the peacemaker has already received the peace of God. They've already been called sons and daughters of God, and that is what's compelling them to be peacemakers. Does that make sense? First, you receive the peace of God, then you become a peacemaker. You've been blessed first, and then you become a peacemaker. But here's what else it's saying. In the midst of you being persecuted, you will be blessed as well. So it's like a double blessing, I guess. So there's a story of these Korean missionaries who were captured. There's 23 of them captured, imprisoned by the Taliban. And so there's 23 of them. This happened in 2007. And, and they knew they were about to be executed one by one. And so they actually started arguing among each other who was going to go first. Not like, it's not me, it's you. They're all volunteering, and they're arguing about who's going to go first. Now, if that's not... So eventually, only two of them were executed because they met a, a deal was made or something. But here's what's really weird. They get home. They have freedom now. And they would say to each other, don't you wish we were back there? Don't you wish we were back in that prison? Why would they say that? And their explanation for why they said that is because it was then in that prison where they experienced the presence of God like they never had before. And it was like the persecution was worth it for them because it gave them a greater glimpse of God and them being sons and daughters of God. I mean, that's crazy talk. These people are crazy unless it's true. 
unless they're actually really experiencing the, pre- the presence of God in such a way that they'd take it again if it would give them more of God. The degree that you are a peacemaker is the degree that you will experience persecution, but it's also the degree that you will experience the blessings of the, ple- the pleasures of experiencing God, the presence of God. When someone's holding a knife to you in a, in a way, not a literal knife. By the way, don't hear this. If someone's actually holding a knife to you, don't hug them. Not a real knife. But, you know, with their words or whatever, if they're going to persecute you and they're holding a knife to you, you know that the only thing that's going to get them to put that knife down is love. So you, you embrace them, knowing that it will wound you. But you can't help it because you found a truth that you know that the only way they find this is, is sacrifices that you make for them. You know, a lot of, essentially every other religion, it, it sides one way or the other. So, uh, conversion by force. In other words, they pick up the knife to convert people, to force them into believing something. Another religion will, in a sense, run from the world. Find a place where nobody is on a mountaintop, then you'll experience God. That's not Christianity. Christianity says peace is supposed to be actively going out through the Christian, a peacemaker. Not hiding yourself for peace, not by force having peace, but actively hugging, showing love to those who do not know peace. So they'll put the knife down. Now, why would you do that? Why would you do that? Why would the Christian do that? Why would the peacemaker do that? Because the Christian knows that Christ has been stung by the blade of sin and death for them. They know it. They believe it. They can't help. They say, I can't. What else am I to do? My Savior has done this for me, so I will do this. See, Christ gave you a hug on the cross, and he was stung by sin and death. And it's the divine hug that gives you peace. See, God knew that the only thing that would soften your heart to him was that hug on the cross. And yeah, I'm going to tell you, the, the cross is about forgiveness. Yes, the cross is about the kingdom of God coming. Yes, the cross is about eternal life. But the cross is also about you finding a love that makes you actually want God again. That's what the cross is about. See, for all the wrongs that we have done, the knife of justice is pointed at us. It's true. The knife of justice is pointed at you. And here's what Christ does. He comes and he takes the knife and he gives it to you. And you're like, how do I get peace? What do I do? So you turn the knife the other way towards him. And on the cross, he gives you that embrace. He's wounded for your transgressions, wounded for your sins. He's crushed for your sins on the cross. And he hugs you anyways. And as he embraces you, he then begins to whisper the words to you. I love you. And I did this for you. And I did this so you might know the love that I have for you. And then his arms go limp. 
and he hits the ground, and you say, what have I done? And you walk away. I can't believe I've done this. Your Savior lying on the ground. But then three days later, there's a knock on your door, and you open it up, and it's him. He's arisen. And he comes in, and you have a meal with him, and have a long conversation about how, how he had to do that for you so that you might know how much he loves you. And then he says, it's time for me to go, but I'm going to send you my spirit, and he's going to guide you back to me. And there's going to come a day where we are fully reunited again. And until that day, my spirit is inside of you, reminding you that I am in the heavens and I am interceding for you. I am sitting at the right hand of the Father, telling him that you are ours and we are yours always, over and over again. It's what he's doing. He's loving it. He is taking such joy, sitting by the Father, telling the Father how much they are to love you because of what he's done in your place. All that he's done for you to give you peace so you can be reconciled. And that is how you can give someone a hug when they're holding the knife out to you because he's already done it.